attention to God's Word uh, as we find it in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. We're going to be beginning in verse 18. We were in the earlier part of this chapter uh, just last week, but we'll be in John 15, verse 18. And I've been saying this as we, as we come to this section of John. This started chapter 13 of John, and uh, it's going to be true for a couple more chapters, that for us, as we read this, as we study this, you know, this takes time, it takes weeks, and it can feel like we're studying something that played out over weeks, but this is a section, and if, you've, if you haven't been to this study before, uh, I really want you to keep this in mind. We're coming to a part of the Gospel of John where for several chapters, it's the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And uh, this has been called the farewell discourse. And Jesus really has just these remaining hours before He's arrested later that night and taken into custody, and then the next day He's crucified. And, of course, everything changes. At that point, the disciples, the apostles, they've lived with Him for something like three years now. They've just pretty much had unbroken access to Him bodily, physically. And all that's about to change, and he's, in a sense, giving these last words to get them ready. And I want you to think about what he's about to say. Uh, There's a term that shows up in the Gospel of John just exponentially more than the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's the term, the world. And this comes up in the very first chapter, almost right out of the chute. And I want you to hear what Jesus is about to say because here's the great thing about Jesus. Always realistic. He he is never giving you the kind of pie in the sky, by and by, you know, just just be happy and be nice to people and, and just try to see the best in everything. When something's great, He'll describe it as great. When it's terrible, He'll let you know it's terrible. And He pulls no punches here to say, listen, the world hates me. And because you are associated with me, and you will be forever now, you will now participate in this hatred that the world has for me and for my Father. And here's the amazing thing. He not only is realistic about that, just in these last few hours, but He also shows to them something that He's been showing all along, is that He is giving the world the very thing that it needs for its hatred to end. That that He is going to lovingly give this to the very world that hates Him back. Look with me in John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now 
They have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you, to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you you may remember that I told them to you. Amen. Let's ask God to bless our time in His Word. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to read something that I read a few weeks ago because uh, I I just, I couldn't not read this. I know that's terrible grammar. But uh, I, I thought about this immediately as I saw the text that that we were looking at for this week, as I mentioned several weeks ago, very well-known writer, Anne Rice, who is most known for her novels about vampires, a few years ago wrote a novel about the childhood of Jesus. It's called Christ the Lord. And she did this to fulfill sort of a parting... um, request, exhortation that her husband gave her before he passed away. They were very close. And as he was dying, he told his wife, I want you to write that book about Jesus that you've been wanting to write. And Anne Rice writes this novel, and she puts an afterword at the end. And she says in there kind of about how this book came about. And something she's known for is her research. And if she she depicts... Uh, a ballroom in the late 1700s in some particular spot of Europe, let's say Madrid, and if she describes some uh, woman's clothing who's at this uh, dance or, or, or ball, you better believe that is exactly how it is. She always does her homework, and she's known for that. So when she takes up this book about Jesus' childhood, she starts doing all this extensive research about the New Testament about whether or not the records are historically accurate, and about Jesus in particular. And here's what she says. In sum, the whole case for the non-divine Jesus who stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow got crucified by nobody and had nothing to do with the founding of Christianity and would be horrified by it if he knew about it, which is usually the Jesus that you hear about around Easter, in Time, Newsweek, whatever. That whole picture which had floated in the liberal circles I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case was not made. 
Not only was it not made, I discovered in this field some of the worst and most biased scholarship I'd ever read. And I had also sensed something else. Many of these scholars who apparently devoted their lives to New Testament scholarship disliked Jesus Christ. Some pitied Him as a hopeless failure. Others sneered at Him. Some felt an outright contempt. I'd never come across this kind of emotion in any other field of research, at least not to this extent. It was puzzling. And then she says this, The people who go into Elizabethan studies don't set out to prove that Queen Elizabeth was a fool. They don't personally dislike her. They don't make snickering remarks about her or spend their careers trying to pick apart her historical reputation. In general, scholars don't spend their lives in the company of historical figures whom they openly despise. But there are New Testament scholars, she says, who detest and despise Jesus Christ. And she says, I I, I was not expecting to find that, and I was surprised when I bumped into it. And I bumped into it over and over and over. Now, the interesting thing is, you read in the Gospels, and you actually find that Jesus had already said, this is exactly how it will be. And it can take a very urbane, uh, learned, sort of academic appearance, like what she's describing. I mean, the people that she was reading are brilliant. I've read, I think, some of the stuff she's talking about. Brilliant men and women who detest Him. Or it might look like, and I mentioned this in the prayer, what happened one week ago today uh, in a village in Nigeria. And there's a ton of Christians in Nigeria. But in one day, over 200 Christians, as they gathered, were killed with machetes. And the women were not spared and the young children were not spared, and the babies were not spared. That was a week ago. Very different in appearance. But Jesus says those are really made of the same DNA. And it is this old hostility between what He calls the world and me. So here's what I want to look at from this text. First off, the world's hatred. And then second, Jesus' provision for it. The world's hatred and Jesus' provision for it. Okay, first off, the world's hatred. Just listen again to verses 18 and 19. You know, it's, it's bad writing if you say something too much. Like if you were writing and you said, my friend Chris and I went to get coffee and Chris said such and such to me and I said to Chris, Chris, I really like you. That's bad writing. Listen to the repetition that Jesus is driving home, verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is all through John. John talks about the world way more than the other three Gospels put together. Now, what does that term mean? Biblically, when you see that, the world, it's not so much talking about planet Earth or even necessarily all the people on planet Earth. It's talking about an ideology. It's talking about a posture, a bent, 
And the bent is away from the very God who made the world. And I was trying to think, what is a way to sort of sum up what the world is about? And uh, Friday, I watched Star Trek again, and, I, and something crystallized in my mind. Uh, talking about the most recent Star Trek that came out last year. At the end of Star Trek, if you will recall, um, <clears throat> as this just giant Romulan death craft, it's kind of like the Romulan Death Star, is being pulled into this black hole that it created and is, is basically just being vaporized, there's this final communication between the Enterprise and the main bad guy on the Romulan ship, and it's this guy named Nero, whom Spock described as a particularly troubled Romulan. <clears throat> and so there's this communication between Kirk and Spock and, uh, and Nero, and this is it. This ship is already in, his ship is already into the black hole. It's just already being just destroyed. And they offer him rescue. And he says back to them, I would rather die in agony than accept assistance from you. To which Kirk says, you got it. Okay, but those words, I would rather die in agony than accept assistance from you. If you want to know what the world is about, it is that in the human heart directed at God on a massive scale. And it can look all kinds of ways. It can be very overt. It can be a fist raised toward heaven. I don't believe in God. It's, that's complete superstition. It's for idiots. Don't buy into it. And don't be afraid of this God and don't be afraid of dying. There's nothing on the other side of it. Very overt. It can look like that or it can look like the most moral people in the world. And in this part of the country, it's probably going to look more like the latter. And as God comes even to a moral person who needs rescue... You know, Kirk says to Nero, your ship is compromised. And essentially what God is coming to mankind is saying, your soul is compromised. You cannot pull out in your own energy. You cannot pull out in your own strength. You cannot save yourself. That sometimes it is the most moral person saying, do not talk to me like I'm not a good person. I don't need rescue. I don't need cleansing. Either of those are the world's hatred. Of Jesus. Now, just as you look at what Jesus says about it, you kind of get different aspects of what the hatred is like. First off, it's irrational. It doesn't make any sense. Look in verse 22. He says, If, here's this if scenario, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Look at verse 25. The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. I mean, think about, just think about what we've already bumped into in this gospel. You have a man who will stand up and speak like no one's ever spoken. He's raised, we know, at least one dead man in front of a bunch of people. He's fed people. Whether they agreed with him or not, he fed them. 
He's healed people. Whether they agreed with him or not, you would think, all right, that kind of scenario, not done in a closet, not done in a corner, but out in front of everybody, you would think, you might disagree with him, you might even think he's a weirdo, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't try to, like, kill him. You wouldn't say, I hate his guts. Jesus says, that is exactly what I encounter. That they hate me. This is a fulfillment of Scripture. They hate me without a cause. If I hadn't said these things and done these things, they'd have an excuse. But now that I have, there's no excuse. It is baseless hatred. It's irrational. And what else do you see about it? That ultimately, it's aimed at not just Jesus, but it's aimed at God the Father and God the Son. But there's a problem. Look in verse 23. It says, whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. Look down below at verse 3. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Now, what's the problem? The problem is that you can't see God the Father. And Jesus says, I'm about to go away from you. And so now the world won't see me either. And get, So guess who's going to absorb the hatred? The people who are associated with me. And here he is with these men saying, Hey guys, guess who that's going to be? That's going to be you. You'll absorb a hatred that ultimately is aimed at my father and me, but it's going to land on you. Now, again... In our, in our context, where we are in the Bible Belt, as you hear that, your mental picture of what kind of person this is that does all this hating, you may think about maybe the mean uh, atheist professor I had in college and, you know, who just never missed the opportunity to poke fun at Christians or the Bible or the church. I had a professor like that in college. He used to love to joke about the late, great J.C., Jesus, and would not miss an opportunity to take a, uh, take a stab at him. Mentally, what we probably picture is the really irreligious, sarcastic, skeptical, hostile sort of person to religion or God. Did you catch that as Jesus is describing this hating world, is it irreligious? Or religious. Look back in the text. Verse 25. The word that is written in their law, the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. And he quotes the Old Testament. They hated me without cause. And look down in verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Why? They're in them. And he goes on to say this, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. As he's describing the world, yeah, it is ap- applicable to the, you know, the angry professor, but mainly the people he's talking about believe in God. They believe there's only one God, there's not multiple gods, which is unusual in the world scene. They believe that morality is found in God's law. They believe in prayer. They believe in worship. They believe in the family. 
They believe that marriage should be between one man and one woman. They believe all that stuff. And they hate Jesus. They're religious. The religious world. Now, how does this help us? Did you know what, what Jesus kept saying? He doesn't just throw out this teaching, but we're supposed to do something with it. What does He say? Look in verse, uh, look in verse 20. He says, remember... Remember, when I'm gone, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Look down in verse 4. I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, when these things happen, you may remember that I told them to you. Okay, why, as we're sitting here this morning, and then as we go back out, Why does Jesus not only want the apostles to remember this, why does He want us to remember it? Hatred for Jesus is going to look different in different contexts. And it may be that even in a place like Greenville, it may be that you have really bumped into hostility, um, verbal abuse. You may have uh, been denied a job or denied a promotion or met with physical hostility. I mean, those things can happen anywhere But that's usually not what it's going to look like here. And so if it doesn't usually look like that here, how does it help me to remember? Let let me me share this with you. A friend of mine who lives in my hometown, Jackson, Mississippi, which would be very similar to Greenville in that it's a very churchy place and that's still a consensus. It's the kind of place where you can still ask a stranger, where do you go to church? And it's still fairly safe. Whereas that would be unthinkable in other parts of the country. And he said that uh, this friend of mine sells insurance. He was at an insurance agent's lunch. It's not a Christian gathering. He was just at an insurance agent's lunch in Jackson. And so they were about to have lunch, and uh, the guy running the meeting said... Uh, so-and-so is going to return thanks for us. All right, stop. Stop. That, that moment is already unusual nationally. So-and-so is going to return thanks for us. And so, you know, guy stands up, let us pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this day. And we give you thanks for this food that we're about to enjoy. We thank you that we can get together and have this fellowship between us. Bless this food. The nurse rabbi is there. The kind of autopilot prayer. Okay, what you had in that moment... In fact, this may be so familiar to you that you don't feel the shock of it. He just called an insurance agent's luncheon fellowship. Whereas in a place like Nigeria, uh, it could cost you your life to have fellowship. But what the world's culture is and this distinct body of Christ had merged into one thing. Greenville is like that. There are moments like that in Greenville. And what that can mean is that we can be shocked when we bump into resistance. When I say we, I mean Christians. That it can take you by surprise like, I must be doing something wrong. Now, I think we always ought to ask ourselves, is it something about me? What kind of tone did I use with this person? Or how did I come across... Did did I speak to them from the moral high ground? 
Did I talk down to them? We should always ask that question, but sometimes the answer is no. It wasn't tone. It wasn't looking down on them. I wasn't being pedantic. But they really still have it in for me. And it's shocking to us. Listen to this. One of the men who was in the room that night when Jesus was saying these things, or in the garden, Peter, he wrote this later in the New Testament. We of all people need to hear this. Listen to this. Beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And all of us have to ask the question, have I over-accommodated? Have I over-accommodated the culture? In other words, have I accommodated so much that I've become more the culture that is supposed to be reached than like the gospel that reaches it? And probably all of us have over-accommodated. And a little litmus test for that is, do I ever meet with such resistance? Should we go out and drum it up? Should we go try to manufacture it? No. But Jesus is the one who said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Because that is how they spoke about the false prophets. And that is one of those sentences of Jesus that I don't like because I want everybody to speak well of me. And I'm a little taken aback if someone out there doesn't. Whereas Jesus is saying, woe to you if that happened. You would have over-accommodated. You would have given so much to the very culture you're supposed to reach that you are no longer distinct. We're not to be shocked by it. And let me say this too. It may be that God really worked in your life and gave you ears to hear these things and eyes to see them. And again, if that happened, it's His mercy. And that when He did that, you had family members watching you. And it may have been that they gave you sort of a, a, a kind of gave you a pass for a while thinking that you were going through a phase. But you continued saying these things. And you continue talking about this Jesus. And it has led to some real tension, even within your own family. Do you know who was always the most realistic about the fact that that would happen? Jesus. He says in Matthew 10 that the enemies, a man's enemies, will be those of his own household. We get pulled into it. Don't be surprised by it. But the second thing to think about is this. I hope this thought has, come, has gone across our minds. If the world naturally is bent away from God, and if the natural perspective of the world is, I would rather die in agony than accept assistance from you, then why do any of us think differently? Why do any of us... Like when I said we a moment ago, referring to Christians, how could there be a we? And that's where you start to see Jesus' provision for a hating world. What's Jesus' provision for a hating world? Think about this. 
all through the Gospel of John, there's this realism. The world hates. The world resists. The world is blind. God comes to the world. Jesus comes to the world. The world doesn't receive Him. So you'd think it might say, and so Jesus rejects it. Or Jesus is angry at it. Or Jesus uh, is going to have vengeance on it. Let me read you three quotes that we've already looked at in John. Listen to this. One of them, first one, very famous. For God so loved the world. Now think about that. They hate me and they hate my Father. And they're going to hate you. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. John 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Last one, chapter 12, verse 46. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now that's Jesus. And the provision that He makes for a world that hates Him is Himself. In the irony of ironies, this will be the thing that torments Satan forever, is that when this one man managed to bring on himself the absolute anger and hatred of both the Roman world and the Jewish world on his head at the same time. I mean, hatred just converged on Jesus. At that moment, he overcame hatred. That he who had never hated and had always loved took the power of hating and the curse and justice that hating deserves on himself and paid for it. And listen to what else he does. Look in verse 26. He says, but when the Helper comes, we've looked at this, the Holy Spirit. When the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. In other words, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit And He's going to bear witness about me. To who? He's going to bear witness to whom? To people who don't naturally love me. The Holy Spirit, who's not an it, He's a He. He's going to come to people and say, you need to think about Jesus. And then He gives something else. Look in verse 27. He says, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. In other words, I'm going to give the world... Apostles, you're going to write down the things I said. And you're going to establish this New Testament church. And the Word, your Word, my Word through you, the church is going to literally change the world. What does that look like? I want to read you just a couple of brief excerpts. This is 
one writer's account of becoming a Christian when she thought that was the last thing that could ever happen in her life. Um, writer, very bright, admittedly, she would say, very left-wing and wanted no part of churchiness or Jesus. <clears throat> she talks about that she went through um, a lot of substance abuse, went through an abortion, which is kind of reeling in her life, and that there was this little church near the houseboat that she lived on in San Francisco Bay. And she started walking past this church and listening to the music. And then she started walking inside. And she wouldn't sit down. And when they had a little time in church where people would get up and hug each other, people would come up and hug her, and she said, quote, I was as frozen and stiff as Richard Nixon. And she, she wouldn't sit down. She would not stay for the sermon. But here's what she said. Something inside me that was stiff and rotting would feel soft and tender. Somehow the singing wore down all the boundaries and distinctions that kept me so isolated. Sitting there, standing with them to sing, sometimes so shaky and sick that I felt like I might tip over. I felt bigger than myself. Like I was being taken care of, tricked into coming back to life. But I had to leave before the sermon, so she always would. Well, she goes through a time where um, she has some physical after-effects of her abortion. She's still misusing drinks. She's still taking drugs. So one night she's up. She's a physical wreck. She's smoking one cigarette, and she is just kind of on the edge. And she said that she became aware of someone watching her. It made her so nervous, she turned the light on in her bedroom, and she said, I knew exactly who it was. It was Jesus. And she said, and I was appalled. I thought about my life and my brilliant, hilarious, progressive friends. I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian, and it seemed an utterly impossible thing that simply could not be allowed to happen. I turned to the wall and said out loud, I would rather die. She said that. To the wall. You know, I would rather die in agony than accept assistance from you. She goes back to the... Why is she going back to this church? I'm not going to believe in you. I'll never follow Jesus. She's back at church. She said, one week later when I went back to church, I was so hungover that I couldn't stand up for the songs. And this time I stayed for the sermon, which I thought was so ridiculous like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials. But the last song was so deep and raw and pure that I could not escape. It was as if the people were singing in between the notes, weeping and joyful at the same time. And I felt like their voices or something was rocking me in its bosom, holding me like a scared kid, and I opened up to that feeling. And it washed over me. I began to cry and I left before the benediction and I raced home and felt the little cat running along at my heels. And the cat, the cat is Jesus, following her everywhere. And I walked down the dock past dozens of potted flowers under a blue sky and I opened the door to my houseboat and I stood there a minute and then I hung my head and said, I actually can't quote you exactly what she said. She said, I quit. I took a long, deep breath and said out loud, All right, you can come in. I want to end with this. 
I mean, did you gather that she was not looking for Jesus? I would rather die. Goes after her. Jesus, through the church, through the Word, by His Spirit. Let me end with this. To those of you here this morning who are Christians, a couple of things to take away. Always remember that we showed up not loving God. And we need to always hear that. We are not the clever, spiritually-minded people who had the decency and insight to figure it out. We were born part of the world. And if we are sitting here this morning, if you're sitting here this morning, and you know that you love Jesus, and you know that the Father and the Son love you, it's unnatural. It's because He acted first. And in light of that, I want to exhort you to think about something. I want you to think about where God has placed you. Your apartment, your house, your cubicle, your office, your stores are no accident. And the church, while it is this, it's you. That inside of you, you have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And God in His love is pleased to use the likes of us to spread this good news out there. The only thing that transforms the hatred of Jesus into the love of Jesus is the gospel. And those to whom God gives the gospel to carry, it's us. It's us. Be bold. Be intentional. But I would say this too. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, but there's this sneaky sense that someone is closing in, I would say to you, and you'd have to trust Jesus on this, and in a sense, trust me. He's loving you. He's drawing you in. And I would exhort you, not only on His authority, but His love and compassion, yield. Yield and put your weapons down. And you will find what your heart always craved both God and man, Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that the pockets in our own hearts that really hate you, resist you, resist Jesus, resist Him saving us instead of us saving ourselves. We pray that it would be dislodged and displaced by the good news. Father, in our very religious city, we pray that where there really is hatred of Jesus, both overt or very moral, that it would be dislodged. That the kingdom of this world would become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ.
And we ask this in his name. Amen.